Welcome, everyone. It's 11 o'clock, so if you could grab a seat, that would be great. Welcome to 11th hour. Uh, just a reminder, again, to please turn off for silent cell phones if you have them uh, with you. And also, if there's any questions at the end, I'll carry around the mic so we can capture those. Writers will often say that they need distance from a subject before they can adequately capture it on the page. Writing from a place of grief or bitterness or longing or even joy can be fraught. But then again, aren't those the very emotions that our work seeks to capture? Today, Sandra Schofield will discuss the long way from the impulse to write about love and grief to the stories that ideally capture those deep, complex emotions. Sandra is the author of seven novels, including Beyond Deserving, a National Book Award finalist. Her awards also include a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship and the Best Fiction Award from the Texas Institute of Letters for her novel, A Chance to See Egypt. Her most recent book is an essay collection about family, mysteries of love and grief, reflections on a plainswoman's life. She is on the faculty of Pine Manor College Solstice Low Residency <laughs> MFA program, she has been a faculty member at the Iowa Summer Writing Festival for many years, and she's a landscape painter. She lives in Missoula, Montana, and Portland, Oregon. Please join me in welcoming Sandra Schofield. All right, thank you. So you can hear me? Okay, thank you for coming. Um, this is not a craft lecture. This is a report from the field. I went, I got back, and here I am. I'm different now. I've been a slippery observer, a mental note taker, a child of the wonder why all my life. When I was a little girl, the question was, why isn't it okay for me to be with my grandmother? Why can't I be with her all the time? What's my mother's problem? Who's mad? Why? Did I do something wrong? After all, my mother and I lived with my grandmother from the day of my birth until I was almost 10 years old. During that time, my aunt and uncle grew up in the same house, went off to marry, to be in the occupation forces in Italy. Along the way, my mother married too and brought him home and had another daughter. And still we were in my grandmother's house until the months before I turned 10. And from that day forward, I watched for signs of tension between my mother and my grandmother and felt them like lashes on my heart. I always thought they were about me, because when you're a child, everything is. Later, I lived with my grandmother again when my mother died at age 33, and after I finished college and had no idea what to do next. She was home base for me, and yet we never shared a secret. We never opened our hearts. I never asked for explanations because I knew she wouldn't give me any. Most of all, I wanted to know why she was angry. She was never angry at me, but I could see that there was anger in her. She, there was something that would make its way out someday, and I wondered what that would happen. I didn't know her history, I didn't know how her husband was killed while at work for the Oklahoma State Highway Department, how his father had taken a loan against his son's life insurance and never paid it back, how she lost her house and had to take her three children to her grandmother's farm, 
and leave them there for four years while she lived in a boxcar and cooked for railroad gangs during the Depression. I didn't know any of this history until I was 70 years old and finally bothered to find out. In my late 30s, I had started to write about her, which is to say to write about myself, about my childhood. After all, there were incidents when she had hurt my feelings, like not coming to my eighth grade piano recital. And there was the mystery of the year when my mother wouldn't let me go to her house at all. There was still the pain of my mother's death, about which my grandmother and I never spoke. The one person I could talk to was my Aunt May, who is now 91, working full-time at Walmart. She was a born storyteller and a bit of a grudge keeper. She fed me stories, the same ones year after year, and I was the only one who wanted to hear them. But I didn't know what it was I wanted to tell or say. I just knew I wanted to understand my grandmother better, and my way was to make a story. I thought if I told what happened, I would understand what it meant. I played with some of the mystery of my family in novels, like a sauce I kept putting on whatever I cooked up. But the satisfaction of fiction, and there is satisfaction in it, wasn't what I wanted from my family history. I should have started with questions and conversations when she was alive. After all, I lived with her after college for a year, teaching at a Catholic school, coming home to have supper, read a book, and watch Johnny Carson with her. But my grandmother literally had tight lips. She loved me and was generous to me and forgave me anything, but I couldn't imagine asking her to talk about herself. Some things I understood couldn't be said. And then she died in her house in Wichita Falls on September 18, 1983. I didn't go from Oregon to Texas for the funeral, but I called the sisters at the school where I had taught, and two of them went to the funeral home and then called me to say that she had looked lovely at peace and that they were praying for her and me. There were quarrels about the will, although all she owned was an old car and a small house and a new washer and dryer. She had piles of photographs and old papers, and my aunt scooped those up and put them into boxes before the business of the executor could be managed. She sent the boxes to me. There was her Bible, Frida's Bible, with all its notes, copied aphorisms, cutouts from the newspaper, announcements, reminders, lists, names, dates. There were also letters and photos and baptism certificates and her nurse's cap. I made a place for the two boxes in the bottom of our kitchen pantry, and I thought I would sit down with them sometime soon, I said. I understood that my aunt had given them to me because I really was the only one in the family who would care about them. I felt a sense of obligation to my aunt and to my cousins and to my grandmother. After all, I was the writer. That was 1983. I had just turned 40 the month before she died. I had written a story about her that she never got to read, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. 
I opened the cupboard and stared at the boxes, but I couldn't bring myself to look at them, so I put them away again. It was 20 years before I opened them and took things out and put them on my kitchen table. Then it was 2005, and we were packing to move to another state, and I wondered if maybe I should look at them again and throw some things away. So I sat at the kitchen table all night, handling everything, reading very little, numb and dull, and a little lonely. And that's when I knew I had to write a story about my grandmother's life, and I also knew I had no idea how to go about it but I didn't throw anything out. I didn't expect to be an old woman before I undertook this task, but it took a long time for me to understand that my grandmother had her own story and that she had taken it with her, and every person, and that every person, I would finally understand, takes her selfhood with her. Some things aren't meant to be revealed, so what was available to me in some ways, it's a relief that you take your story with you, isn't it? The things that hurt my grandmother for so many years, they didn't hurt her anymore. Did they exist anymore? Could they hurt me? These were the kinds of questions I wanted to answer. I still love my grandmother as a child does. And though I didn't want to lose those feelings that arose from the sensibility of a child, I wanted to love her for herself, a complicated, mysterious person. And so I thought, here is a woman. She spoke German as a child. She lived in Oklahoma and New Mexico and Arizona and Texas on tenant farms, in railroad cars, in settler's cabin, in stucco houses. She labored her whole life. She married four times but I believe she only lived, loved her first husband, Ira Hamilton, the mother of her children. She suffered tragic losses, but she got up in the morning. She cultivated gardens and apricot trees. She took care of my dying mother and her dying mother and her stepfather, and she took care of me. She became a nurse at age 55, and later yet she learned to paint. In her last year, she made quilt tops for her granddaughters from the remains of baby clothes she had stored all over the house. And she once had a dachshund named Tiny. So I resolved to do my best. Like a mourner at a grave, I thought, I will honor her. And if I could have, then I would have painted her portrait. Frida in her backyard, her hand shading her eyes as she studies the sky, watching a storm come in. I wanted to bring her back. I wanted to capture her. But the writing came in dribbles, and I felt anxious about it. There was a story I had written the year she died. I looked at it again. There was a story when I tried to imagine why she married that strange old man late in life. And there was a story I had written about the year I lived with her after college but there really wasn't anything new coming out. As I looked at photographs, I made scribbles on index cards and post-it notes. I just didn't know where to begin. Should I write a narrative? Could I learn enough to write a biography? 
I wished I had trained as a historian in college. And was I in the story or out of the story? Would my extrapolations and interpretations be about her or would they be about me? And what would my sister and my cousins have to say about this enterprise? Was any of it their business, what I wrote? And did I have the right to excavate the life of someone who never talked about her life? Had she really been angry, not just in private? And if so, could I possibly explain it now? And what about the things she did that bothered me? Things I learned from the scraps in that box. For example, there was a social security card with a name I had never heard and letters from that man to my mother. May was surprised when the subject came up, but she explained to me blithely that Frida had married a man in 1940 so that she could bring her boxcar railroad life to a close and move her children to Gallup into his house. When he had served her need and gone to war, she cut him off like a bad debt. He never saw her again. And what about the secrets she kept from me? She died, even though I asked, without telling me who my father was. I knew she knew. After my mother died, she sent my stepfather, the only dad I had ever known, packing. And he, weak-kneed, relieved of responsibility, was never seen again. When she was living with a man who beat his child, she did nothing to stop it. Yet this same woman kept letters to my mother from the man who was my father, just as she kept letters to her from a Subiaco Abbey priest. She kept scraps of drawing I had made as a child and recipes and photographs and other letters. She clung to the past as I was doing now because she understood that artifacts, artifacts hold history and she didn't want to let them go. I have to think that all these things she was saving, she was saving for me because nobody else would have been interested. I knew that I had to construct something or I would forever regret it and be mired in the mystery of her grief. I talked to my sister. The last time was in 2003 when I had decided I would write a book about our mother. This would be my memoir, Occasions of Sin. I remember almost nothing about the conversation except that I said that I was going to do this and immediately the phone line was filled with Karen's baffling contempt and anger. She yelled at me until I hung up. I tried to reach my stepfather for the first time ever and my aunt was able to get an address from Karen and his wife wrote back to say Dean wasn't one to write letters. I spoke to my cousin Becky and discovered that she was in the midst of a long effort to identify her family line, her ancestry, and she, along with my daughter, who got caught up in the quest, gave me facts that took my grandmother's family all the way back to Prussia before it became Germany. And so I began to read about immigration and German farmers and the Depression and what it was like to work on the railroad. I read and listened to oral histories from the archives at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, and I learned what it was like to struggle and raise a family in hard times. Were these the things that made my grandmother unhappy? 
One Christmas morning, I got up at 6 o'clock in the morning, sat down, and wrote an essay about my grandmother's failure to help that young girl who was her stepdaughter. That year came back to me in a gush, but with the memories came an understanding that it was in a different time when there were different attitudes and that the struggle of trying to understand those attitudes and her place in them might be worth it. Then I started to tell little stories in the faculty readings here at the Iowa Festival, and they were seeds that became essays in my book. I wrote an essay about the time the FBI came to her house looking for me. I told stories to my husband and to a Texas editor for whom I had done some work and who felt like a friend. Then my daughter had a baby and named her after my mother, and for two years I didn't write anything because I was with them, and there's so much to do with a baby in the house. Then I started teaching in an MFA program, and that took a lot of my time, and the boxes were still there, now in the corner of the bedroom, and tomorrow I would look at what was inside. But it was easy not to. I couldn't imagine how I was going to organize it. It hurt to think about it. And it was a stupid thing to do because, really, who would care about this woman in Texas who was nobody except to me? I just didn't have time for a project like that. And then I had pneumonia, not just once, but over and over for two years. And I thought, as I lay there, what do I want to do before I die? Only a writer can understand the self-importance and anguish of another writer, thinking, I have to get well enough to write this story before I die. And so one day I opened another box, the one into which I had been piling essays and memories and post-it notes and questions and ancestral trees. And the next day I said, damn it, this is going to happen. And I sat down and I began to write. I realized that I would never be able to construct a conventional narrative because I didn't have enough information. What I had was questions. And once I understood that, I had a way in. I decided that the book would be about raising those questions and honoring the ambiguity of other people's lives. I would write as much what and who and when as I could, and why would be a challenge to me, the thread of the book. I would write about one thing at a time and not worry about all the things I wasn't writing about. And then when I wrote about something else, if there was more to be said about something before that, I would address it again. In other words, I knew that I was coming around and around and around, but I really still didn't know until I had written the book where it was I was going. I was going to turn history over and over until something made sense, and if I couldn't solve a mystery, I could honor it. I was all set up in one corner of my living room for what turned out to be a year of daily work. Hour after hour, I can't tell you how my back hurt. My hip hurt. I couldn't sleep. I needed a drink of water. There was my chair on the side table. Where were those papers I was looking for? There was a hassock for piles. There was a straw basket for piles. There were piles on the floor, and my husband tenderly avoided that part of the house. 
My Texas friend agreed to be my editor, which in this case meant that for the first time in my life, in my writing career, I would have someone at the other end of my writing. I could tell her about my grandmother, and it made a tremendous difference to the way I felt. Judith Keeling kept me going because I believed her when she said that it was a wonderful story that needed to be told, when she told me that whatever her mistakes and faults, my grandmother was a strong, brave woman. I believed her when she told me that part of the story was the tensile stretch of my grandmother's love for me and mine for her. And I believed her when she said I would survive this writing task. I answered her questions because if she asked them, I thought they would take me somewhere I needed to go. And Judith was right. What I learned and what I wrote about Frida, I think, does honor her, not just for her losses and grief and pain, but for her strength and courage. I learned that people are the product of their times. I learned that it wasn't up to me to forgive someone else's transgressions or even to understand them, and that I could never have assuaged her pain by asking her questions, even as I couldn't assuage it now. I also learned that I could never know what she didn't want to tell me and that it wasn't really my right to know. I learned that she died in the way she wanted to, alone, unfettered by intervention, and I accepted over time that she hadn't wanted me to be there. She, I learned in a way I never recognized before how much a life is an arc and that if you spend your energy in the past, in the first part of it, you can't go high or far on that arc. And I couldn't help comparing myself to my grandmother. I recognized how much I had depended on her as a child and as a young adult, and how selfish and vain and impatient I had been as a teenager, how much I had hurt her feelings, how little I had thought about her feelings, though I kept saying to myself, I did try to make it up to her. My husband and I were able to bring her to Oregon for visits, and I went to Wichita Falls often to see her, taking my child. I went over and over those visits in my mind, I suppose seeking some sort of absolution and making the foreground of my memories be those things. I put up pictures of her, hugging her arms and shrieking in delight, standing in the snow at Crater Lake and the one of her laughing in a canoe ride on the Mackenzie River in eastern Oregon. I remembered the time she came to see me having made homemade wine for my husband. And I remembered when she patted my bed that she was sitting on in my house, and she said to me, you have a good life, Sandra. You just need to make a few friends. I found a beautiful photograph of her with her husband, Ira, when she was pregnant with my mother, and in that moment, she had been happy, and I held that. But now, now I try not to think of her very much at all, just as I have stopped thinking very much about my mother. There is something about writing a book about family that helps the pain of the process, and when you are done, you have turned your memory into an object, and you can put the object on the shelf, and you can put a lot of the feelings there with it. You say, there you are. You're over there. 
You owe nothing more to that book or that object. And as hard as it is to say this, I think you owe nothing more to the subject. I'm done. And what am I left with? A lot more than the book. When I went into those boxes from Frida's house, at age 50, I found my father. I found him in a way that allowed me to forgive him for not being perfect, for not being there, and made me respect him for his strength and his goodness. I even suggested that my grandmother might be fond of him when she realized he'd lived in the same house for 70 years. I counted my blessings and saw the constellation of my family, my poor little sister, who was younger than I when mother died, my aunt, both of them feeling shunted aside, my cousins cut off from their grandmother by their angry father, my mother, more real to me now than when I wrote a whole book about her, because now I understood who she was to her mother. And I also recognized something about my grandmother that was happy, what it was to be a grandmother. And I embraced that too, not just for my granddaughter, but for Frida and me. But when you write about your family, you are bound to see yourself. And I made other discoveries, not just about how I lived in the past, but about how I want to live in my late years. I don't want anger and resentment and regret to cling to me. I don't want people to wonder why I was like that when I die. I resolved to be a new or at least better person, not bitter and I got a better relationship with my father out of it. I couldn't solve the puzzle of my sister's anger, but I could wish her well. And I could try to be a part of what's left of my family, taking my granddaughter to Texas, seeing my aunt as often as I could. The question for me isn't what do I write next, it's who I want to be. Time is short. I look at my history sometimes with shame and regret, but there's nothing gained in that. Once about 10 years ago, I tried to go through a Jesuit retreat like priests and trainings do, which involved facing and naming your faults. A couple of months into that, I thought, this is insane. I will die doing this. So instead, I started painting. I made trips to see art, and I have a special thing for the grave sites of artists. I love my granddaughter. I've not only chosen my grave site, I've taken her to see it. I have always had a mind stuffed with the past and with desire and hunger, but now I think it's good to empty your mind of the past and, and of the shrinking future. There is now. I often breathe and try to count to ten. I try to be outdoors more. I want to be a generous wife and teacher and friend. I've stopped telling my daughter how to live her life. There are still new things I want to learn. If all this sounds terribly obvious and simple, well, it is, but not until you see it. All the time I worked on my book, I was so sad and heavy, and I thought life was so grievous. I wondered if I would ever come out the other side. So does it seem overly simple to say that a trip to Italy with my husband helped a lot? <laughs> Is it simple to say that painting helps, that color helps, that taking my daughter to, granddaughter to her swimming lesson helps, 
that every nice day feels like a gift? Sometimes I think that my book and my pneumonia got conflated. There was the constant pressure in my chest and the racking pain of coughing, and it went right along with the fear that it would never stop. But I did get well, and I did get over the grief of writing about my grandmother. The thing is, writing is a way of seeing and a way of understanding. In some ways, it is a way of being. But it doesn't tie you to your subject. It isn't all of who you are. It doesn't lock you into the feelings you explore. When you write, you are fully there. But when you are not writing, you can be fully not there, not writing. You can balance your heart and your ego and ambition so that writing doesn't become a beast in you. How can you stand to enter the lives of fictional characters, let alone real characters, the real people in your life, if you don't ever exit? How can you learn to accept the vagaries of publication and acceptance and rejection if they matter too much? The psychic cost of what you do as a writer is high. And sometimes you just have to endure it. Sometimes you have to see that it is obscuring your view of your own joy in living. I think the work we do here in our workshops is great and good work. We admire and respect story and image and feeling, and we admire and respect each other's ways of expressing those things. We find joy in small discoveries. And we are empowered by turning self-doubt away in favor of craft and diligence and perseverance. Here, we feel safe. So I have resolved, starting in August when I get home, to go through my boxes. The notes and false starts and outlines of 30 years of writing I didn't finish. I haven't done it because I thought I would feel things I didn't want to feel all that I hadn't accomplished, resentment at the rewards I didn't receive, frustration at my inability to make anything out of my puzzles. But why should those things be true? Perhaps I will enjoy revisiting the past of my imagination and recognizing thoughts that I don't even remember having. Perhaps I will find something I want to pursue. Maybe not. Probably not. But if it be no more than the detritus of my writing life, it still is a part of me, and I want to revisit it. I hope to find some one project I wasn't expecting, and I accept that I will make myself vulnerable even to open the boxes and next to write something new. I think I probably will spend more time with my visual art than with writing, but I can be a person with more than one passion, and I can endure the pain of what I know and feel because it's not just part of being a writer. It's part of being human. I will always, always miss my loved ones. I will always, always fear the terrible ways of the world, and I will always be less than I want to be. But I can keep trying. I end with a passage from the book Turn, the Journal of Artists, by the late Anne Truitt. She was a sculptor and painter, and her book, Daybook, was a seminal one for me and for thousands of other artists in all genres. She started writing as a way to understand her art and her life. 
I feel as if I started painting as a way to have a happier, more rounded life. Either way, when I read her, I feel as if we are standing on the same spot in the world. She was at the Baltimore Museum of Art in 1982 at an exhibition of her work, and she says of that, Tears rose to my eyes, and from that feeling the unchangeable and unchanging truth, I am always and always will be vulnerable to my own work. Because by making visible what is most intimate to me, I endow it with the objectivity that forces me to see it with utter distinct clarity. It's a strange fate. I make a home for myself and my work, yet when I enter that home, I feel how flimsy a shelter I have wrought for my spirit. My vulnerability to my life is irrefutable. Not only do I wish it to be otherwise, nor not do I wish it to be otherwise, because vulnerability is the guardian of my integrity. I don't know neither whether I can further endure nor whether I can stop. Thank you. Surely you don't have any questions. <laughs> I've settled them all, yes. Can I what? Frida? F-R-I-E-D-A, Frida Hamilton, H-A-M-B-L-E-T-O-N. Anybody else? Yes. Uh, while you were writing it, did Frida ever viscerally come alive to you? Did you feel she was at your shoulder or sitting next to you or encouraging you or wanting you to stop? No, not really. But I, but when I read, um, like there were letters that had been written to my mother that somehow got saved. And when I heard, when I read, the, and and also she had, I, I guess it, for a long time after her husband died, she was kind, she was sentimental in the sense that she was looking for comfort from, from poems and and sayings and the Bible and so forth. So those things sort of made me feel that I heard her voice. And, and pictures, I think, were more um, helpful than anything else. Anybody else? Great. I'm done with that subject. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. I love you, David.